We should be live, and we're live. All right, this is uh, 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm going to be answering your questions from the live chat, but the first question I have today, before anything else, uh, I took from Twitter. The rest are all going to be from YouTube. And the question is from Jake Teeter, who says, do 1 Timothy 2.9 and 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, prohibit jewelry? For example, wedding bands, necklaces, and... I don't know what ratings is. Anyhow, um, these different things. Does does the scripture, you know, say we shouldn't have these things? And I think we should look at these verses themselves. So the first one is First Timothy, two verse nine. And uh, for, if you're watching this afterwards, you should see in the um, in the video description and in the first comment there should be a timestamp you know, map where you can click around to the questions that you think are the most important for you to know about. And let's dig into this first one. First Timothy 2.9. It says in Malachi 3.2. Hold on a second. First Timothy 2.9. And um, there we go. All right. Now, this passage is where Paul is writing uh, to Timothy about the conduct of men and women in the church, in the body of Christ. This is instruction for Christian conduct. And he says, likewise, also that women, so the topic, the topic specifically is women. Now there's application to men, but in the Bible, when we, when we see um, special instruction to women, special instruction to men, there's often application to the opposite sex, but there's a reason why women are targeted here, men are targeted here, because there are differences between men and women, and we do fall into different temptations sometimes. And that's, I think, the reason for this. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So they should wear respectable or uh, other translations put modest apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and, or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And a, a few things I want to note real quick off the, off the cuff before anything else is this. If the Bible does say that women aren't supposed to wear jewelry, the way our culture responds is to say, well, the Bible's oppressive and it's another reason to dismiss it. I think that... That's utterly foolish, right? If 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 Christianity is true, then it's revealing this because it's God's will and desire for mankind, and we should submit and re and rejoice that He has revealed to us this truth about jewelry. I mean, that's the only rational thing to do. If Christianity is false, then what do you why do you care what the Bible says? And and consequently, if you're an atheist, then I don't understand why you care about jewelry in the first place. Where's the grounding for moral values and duties? But that's another issue. So. <clears throat> What's really going on here, though? Um, I don't think it's a complete forbidding of wearing jewelry. I think what we're getting in the text is not a strict either or, but rather a tendency. There's a tendency um, amongst humans and, and women fall into this probably more often than men. At least that's my opinion. And I think that the scripture is written this way because of that. The tendency is to value external things more than internal things in the sense of beauty. I should say not just external things because guys do it too in different areas but to value external attractiveness and beauty more than internal character. The old cliche of the shallow, pretty girl, right? Th th there's a reason why there's a cliche there because sometimes it's that, it's that value of external beauty that causes you to become more and more shallow and more and more, um, yeah, empty inside. And so that's why he doesn't say um, not, with, or not with braided hair, gold and pearls or costly attire, but with, regular clothes. Instead, he says, but with godliness, like the thing that you want to clothe yourself with is godliness. So I think what this is actually speaking against in First Timothy is against the idea of, of valuing external beauty and attractiveness as a replacement for godly, holy, modest Christian character. And this kicks against our culture big time because in our culture, it really is um, we, we think modesty is not even a virtue, right? Modesty and humility, these things are like considered oppressive to women. And this is just an, un, it's just an ungodly way of taking a, a sin of pride and making it into a goal for women to have. And this is doing much harm to women and all marriages and all sorts of people in our culture. So the instruction to women is about not emphasizing external beauty, but instead emphasizing internal things. Now, does that mean that women can't wear, you know, any sort of um, in any sort of you know pearls or say something a ring in the nose which was more traditional back then and um, you know in the ears or necklaces or, or braided hair for that matter well probably the braided hair here uh, according to the IVP 
commentary. They give you like a Bible background commentary that they have. The braided hair is probably talking about hair that was braided with gold, and it was a way of showing off the luxury and the expense that they had. So in other words, this is like the the modern day example of you have an, a $900 hairdo, you have, yeah, yeah that's that's seen as, an, as a bad thing, biblically, I think. And this is something we have to swallow and, and really digest. This is like having a $1,000 purse. This is over-the-top, costly, expensive things. Now, it's something else. It, you know, I think a wedding ring it doesn't fit. It could fit into this category, but I don't think it necessarily fits directly into it. I don't think that pearls are automatically wrong. It's it's rather to have some wisdom. Now, you're safer if you just swear off all jewelry, but then that itself could become an external show of your 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 morality shown by you not wearing pearls instead of the emphasis, which is meant to be godliness. So I think there's some flexibility here. I think there's a certain amount of jewelry and of outward uh, attractiveness that is appropriate. But our, our culture goes way beyond, way beyond. We, we, we preach the gospel of hoochie mama in our culture. That's just how it is. We, we emphasize obnoxious uh, overemphasis on women's beauty. And I think that this is even shown in our women's ministries when they gather together. And, and this is not every woman's ministry, but it does happen, right? I've, I've seen enough of this kind of thing to know that it's a thing. That they'll gather together and their big emphasis to teach all these Christian women is how beautiful they are. And all the women that get on stage, they are all just totally decked up. Like they're every, like who knows how much time was spent into makeup and outfit before they got on that stage. And then they tell all the women, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're externally beautiful, you're externally beautiful. Is This is kind of the preaching. And we do this to young women, even to teens. I think that this is actually not a Christian value. The, the Christian response is to say, the external beauty just doesn't matter that much. Like, it's just not that valuable. We're, we're overvaluing external beauty. It's not that important. That's actually the message I think that women need to hear. It just isn't that important. Your real value is godliness, modesty, humility, holiness in your life, your devotion to Christ, and your character as a person. There's the beauty you should focus on. And you know, the world focuses on outward beauty and uh, it's just getting worse. The other verse that you mentioned as well, uh, Jake, was First Peter 3. And then I'm going to go to your guys' questions from the live chat. First Peter 3, 3. And let's see, let's take us there. And verse 4, where it says, Do not let your adorning be external, but the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in god's sight is very precious for this is how the holy women who hoped in god used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord and a side note when she called him lord it didn't mean to them what it means to, to us today we use the term lord like in a whole different sense. It, it was a term of respect. It meant that she was yielding to his leadership as husband. Um, I don't think women today are supposed to use the term Lord because it means something different than what it meant when Sarah would have said it. If it meant the same thing, then you should continue using it. But words change meanings. Um, but the meaning should be kept. Now, First Peter, it's the same, same thing. It's almost, almost, you know, you'd think it was a different translation of the same statement as we got in in First Timothy. So yeah, I think that that's the uh, hopefully the right answer. Um, no, you don't have to swear off all jewelry. Um, yes, our culture is absolutely, totally inside out and upside down on this issue, and you do have to stop valuing external things so much and stop trying to compete, trying to compete with other women. And with the for the attention and the looks of the culture, this feeds the lust of man and it feeds the vanity of women. And this is all the kind of stuff that Jesus calls us out of. And yeah, that would mean that a lot of Christian women should change the way they view themselves and the way they make themselves viewable to others. I, I, I think this is a, a, an underapplied scripture for sure. Uh, Flora has a question. <clears throat> Hi, Mike. I'm really enjoying the Mark series. Could I ask why in Matthew 21 verses 1 through 8, there's a donkey and a colt, two animals. Is it something to do with Jesus and Gentiles? Appreciate your thoughts. Um, so first off, let me share this. I, I didn't mention this. Um, for those who are, this is your first time here. Uh, my name is Mike Winger. I'm a pastor in Southern California. I produce these videos, teaching videos that come out once a week or, or sometimes twice. And also Q&A videos. And this is a Friday Q&A every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Whenever it's 1 in California, that's when I go live. And I take your guys' questions. Um, so Flora, this is actually a famous, famous uh, 
issue in Matthew 21 and I and it gets really complicated in the Greek and all this other stuff and I just can't off the top of my head remember all of the answers but basically the thought is uh, Matthew is referencing two animals that Jesus brings with him into Jerusalem and whereas Mark and Luke and uh, does John talk about this in detail and it was Mark and Luke only reference one so the the question you have is is it something to do with Jews and Gentiles and I I think um, if anything if let's say what could be the symbolic meaning of the, of the two animals in Matthew B if anything my my gut is it's not about Jews and Gentiles like the the Jews are the donkeys the, the Gentiles are the donkeys I don't think that's it if anything I I think it's the youngness of the donkey itself there's there's a there's a it's a young donkey that Jesus rides. And so this is a donkey no one has ridden. It's a young donkey. And this might have connotations about the sacrificial nature of Jesus because he's the one riding on the donkey because he is this, the one who's come to serve. So I think the donkey is more about Jesus than it is about anybody else. And that this animal is, although you don't sacrifice uh, donkeys, but it, but it almost feels like it has these sacrificial elements in the animal because it's never been ridden and it's, it's, uh, it's young as well. So that, that would be my my guess. I, I wouldn't personally go with a Jew-Gentile distinction there. Uh, Christian Liang says, Can a Christian who struggles with an addiction be considered born again? Can you be saved and have eternal life and not enter the kingdom of God? And uh, John 3.3, thanks, Mike. See you for the Sunday study. Um, great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. And um, it's going to be like 105 degrees in Bellflower. So yes, I, I'm doing my Sunday night study outdoors because we can't do it indoors. You guys, if, you, if anyone wants to come, you can come. It's at uh, 16523 Bellflower Boulevard in Bellflower, California. And we're meeting at 5 p.m. our time in L.A. there. So <clears throat> here's the thing. It's going to be like 100 degrees, but I'm still going to be there. Me and like three people that decide to show up. Um now, can a Christian who struggles with addiction be considered born again? Um, I'm going to give you a quick answer. Yes. Um, yes. Why not? Um, can a Christian who struggles with sin be born again? I think is a question we should we should put it that way. And the answer is yes. Christians struggle with sin. There is such a thing as a Christian who is who's behaving carnally. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he talks about them being carnal. I don't think he's implying they're not saved. I think he's implying that they're that they have carnal mentalities and that there's issues going on in the church. He does require them to kick out one guy who's sleeping with his father's wife, probably a stepmother that he's been taking up with and he's like, "Yeah, kick the, actually kick him out of the church." But I mean, this is this is to say that sin absolutely is going to be an expected struggle in the life of a believer. I I think that that's very true. And I think that every Christian I've ever known personally would agree. There are those who would say, no, we don't sin. I don't sin. I don't. But once you start asking them questions, you realize they're playing all kinds of word games when they say things like this. Um, okay, so the next thing you said is, can you be saved, have eternal life, and not enter the kingdom of God? I don't know. I don't think so. If you're saved and you have eternal life, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. That's They're all part of the same package. So I don't understand how that could how you could separate those two. And then John 3.3 3, uh, is the verse that you mentioned, so maybe I spoke too soon. Let's go to the scripture that you mentioned, and maybe I'll understand that question a little bit better. Here we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, and so he, he's talking to Nicodemus about a, a rebirth, becoming a new person. This is this is him. The, the, the beautiful thing here is Jesus is talking to a a um, respected leader of the Jewish people. He's checked all the boxes of the law. Okay? He has checked them all. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. You need to be reborn. And of course, he's talking about when you put your faith and trust in Christ and you become reborn, this is this is the thing. Now, can you be reborn and not be not go to heaven? Uh, no, if if you're born again, you're gonna you're gonna be saved. So yeah, the the um the, the bigger issue of can a person lose their salvation and if so, under what conditions? I've Every week I get that question. I answered it in more detail last week. You'll have to check that video as well. Um, let's see here. We have a question from Ariane Nisha. Or Ariane? Nisha? Nisha? How do I pray for a believer who isn't truly walking in Christ with growth and transformation in their life due to habitual sin and lack of intimacy in their relationship with God? Um, 
I think that what I would pray for for that person, and my counsel, if that's you, is not you, Ariane. I think it's not you, but if anybody's listening and you're like, that's me. I am the Christian who is not really walking in Christ. Like you don't see it in my life, but I think I'm a Christian. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I feel like I am. I'm, I'm confused though because my life is so compromised, so backwards that I wonder. And the transformation in my life isn't happening. I've got habitual, ongoing sin and I, I lack intimacy in my relationship with God. If that's you, here's my counsel. And this is, this is going to be my pastoral advice to you. Having counseled many people over the years, my counsel to you is that you need, and I could butter you up with all sorts of things, but I, I think honestly you need to radically repent. And this would be my prayer for them is that they would radically repent, that they would come to a place. You know, we talk about those who do have addictions as having to hit a rock bottom moment. And rock bottom, when we say that phrase, what we mean is that they've come to a place where they say, okay, I, that's it. I'm, I'm through. I'm through. And addiction workers, people who work with those who have addictions and, and, and that kind of thing, they'll say, hey, you know, it's not usually until you reach that rock bottom moment that we often see transformation. And so they'll actually get in the habit, and you could ask guys who work in these kind of fields, where they size people up in 10 seconds. They're like, he's not ready to quit. She's ready to quit. Because they just see that they've kind of hit that rock bottom. Now here's the iron, the ironic deception about rock bottom. We think rock bottom is like some, it exists somewhere. When this happens to me, I will simply stop doing what I'm doing. And then I will get better. But rock bottom doesn't exist. Rock bottom is actually just another way of saying actual repentance. And so it happens when you do it. When you repent, when you, when you say, okay, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. No more games. Lord, I'm serious about this. Then it becomes rock bottom. So my prayer for them is that they would actually radically repent. Because what they'll probably want to do is find patchwork little solutions where they make minor adjustments to their life to make it slightly better. Well, hey, Mike, I started reading the Bible a little bit more. That's good. Hey, I started going to church once a month. And so I think that's good, right? And I want to encourage those things. Those are positive. But what I think makes the huge change in a person's life is when they actually repent of their um, ungodly behaviors of their habitual sin that they're that they're living in of the lack of their intimacy in the relationship with God often what a person like that wants is isn't even a closer relationship with God they just don't want consequences for their sin and that in itself is the thing that has to be repented of where you say well you know what's more important to you just being able to do what you want without suffering or knowing God knowing God truly and, and, and fully knowing God and if the answer in all honesty is well I just I mean, I don't know if I want all that. I just, I just want to have both, right? I want to, I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved. I want to have salvation, but I also want to live in my sin and not suffer for it. And sometimes I feel guilty and then I feel like I want to repent, but the next day I feel better and I'm back at it. And I think this is radical repentance is the thing. So pray for that. Pray that God would grant them repentance. Pray that radical repentance would enter their life and that the light bulb would go on and they would see that they've been playing games. And if, if they see it for what it is, maybe that'll be a moment of change. Um, Will Kozub says, when you ask for, when you ask God for wisdom, how do you expect a reply? Um, how do you hear from God? Does he send thoughts? All right, Will, this is an interesting question and I'm going to do my best to answer it. So, um, when you ask God for wisdom, so first off, scripture does indicate that like God gives us wisdom, but there are different ways in which God gives us wisdom. Okay. So one of the ways God gives us wisdom is in, and probably the primary way is in the scriptures. So the book of Proverbs is literally a book that's meant to train you in wisdom. Like you study this book throughout your life and you're learning wisdom so that when you encounter situations, God gave you wisdom. It was his word that instructed you and that prepared you that you were thinking and meditating on. And then you encounter life and you go, hmm, I think I'll do this. Um, so that's one way God gives us wisdom. Now, that's not maybe the most exciting way to people because it's odd. It's odd that we read something in the word, we learn something, we apply it. And then sometimes Christians feel like, but God hasn't spoke to me. And I'm like, wait a minute, you read his word, you learned it, you lived it. He spoke to you. But we, maybe because of, in some churches, we elevate the personal revelation thing so high that we don't realize that God's word is a revelation to us. So that's the primary thing. First, go to scripture, right? The book of Proverbs, also the wisdom in the book of Acts, the wisdom in, in the gospels, the teachings of Jesus. This is great wisdom. We want to have that. And 
the next thing that you can do is look at another way God might speak to you, which is be internally, just an internal revelation of wisdom. So I think that the gifts of the Spirit are are available today. They're active today to some extent. I, I do think they tend to seem like they happen less than they did at the height of, you know, moments in the book of Acts or when the gospel is going out to new locations. It's And I'm just speaking anecdotally. It seems like it happens more in new gospel environments, you know, where the gospel hasn't been preached, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen at all. And so we have a word of wisdom, a word of wisdom that scripture says God can give us. And I think that that simply, in my personal opinion, is I simply am aware of of a wise thing. And it seems as though God has revealed this. It didn't come from me. Now I'm not going to run out there and be like, thus says the Lord, because do I have that discernment to know, like, I'm totally positive this is something God has revealed to me. Or am I like, I think this is wisdom. I think I've got a, a word of wisdom here on this situation, uh, information or an idea or a concept that, that we should go with. So I've had countless times in my personal life where it's happened this way. I go to pray on an issue and I start praying for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. And I mean, in the middle of the prayer, I just have wisdom. I've, I can't tell you like hundreds, thousands of times that this has happened. Does it happen every time? No, <laughs> no, not remotely. Um, but uh, but it has happened countless times. So I've I've had that occurrence as well. But I still prioritize scripture and the what God has already revealed. Um, in addition to that, he gives us wisdom through other people when you get counsel from other Christians. And um, AJ, I'll need you to send some more questions. That's number five I'm answering now. And so uh, hopefully hopefully you're on that. The um, uh, the balance that I think I try to have, being someone who believes in the gifts of the Spirit that are ongoing today. And yet, who is very worried about hyper charismatic and reckless abuses, especially of things like word of wisdom, like, oh, God's showing me this. I mean, like, I've been in those environments where someone says, like, God showed me. And then I, I go, I think you just, I think you just want that to be true. Like, you know, and, and I keep a track record. I mean, it's like, I don't know, maybe people don't want to tell me what they think God showed them because I'm like, I'm going to remember that a year from now, I'm going to still remember that you said that and we'll see if it happens. And if it does, I'll be like, wow, I have more respect for you. And if it doesn't, then I'll be like, I don't listen to what you say anymore. Um, I love you, but I don't respect what you say is from the Lord. Um, so yeah, there's some thoughts for you. Now, let's see. I have a question from DVGL805 who says, my home church is holding an indoor wedding tomorrow. Despite the local government's current mandate, to not hold indoor wedding ceremonies. Is this in accordance with God's word? Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 13. This is a huge question. It's basically like, yeah, are we justified in as Christians in rebelling, like this, you know, rebelling against our governor, governor or government's orders to not meet indoors? And I am like, I'm like this. So let me just talk to you about why I am still un, like I'm not confident and, and then I'll tell you what, what I'm doing because I'm not confident. And I think probably a lot of you are in the same situation. Um, when it comes to information about COVID-19, it is so polarized politically that everybody is just, they don't care as much about truth as much as they care about what they're going to do with these truths and how they can leverage COVID and the things that are going on and Trump this and Biden that and oh and Pelosi this and all the different things that are going on right now politically. I just feel like in 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 our political culture, what the politicians and and those who are promoting them have gotten so good at is is learning how to leverage everything that happens for votes and for some support for their candidates so they can get them in office. And I view this as manipulation. I just, I think that we're being, we're, we get massive. I'm not conspiratorial here. I just think that we're being massively manipulated. And the more they do it, the more the other side does it. So it's like trench warfare. It's like they dig their trenches down. And on the Republican side and on the Democrat side, there's just more and more of this. Whatever happens, all that matters is how we can leverage it to get more votes on our side, especially during an election year. And it's just chaos. I, I, I just look and I see um, moral corruption all over the place and so then it leaves you in the situation where you're like well who am i supposed to trust who am i supposed to trust i'm not an expert on politics i'm who am i supposed to look to and get wisdom from who is it's not that they're going to be unbiased okay no one's really unbiased but at least they're going to be honest like truly honest have integrity in the way they handle the information 
And for that, I think we're all looking for somebody and we're all kind of scratching our head going like, can I trust that person? And then people send emails and you're looking and you're like, you just get sick of it. That being said, because of all this, I don't really know the right answer to the question of, is this um, somehow wisdom or is it like, say, like John MacArthur suggests, this is this is just oppression of the government, oppression of religion. Now, if, if John MacArthur's right that that COVID is not really as dangerous as he thinks, I'm not convinced one way or the other. I, I, I'm not convinced. And I'll tell you in a second how I'm going to handle that because I don't know. But if I was convinced like him, then I would think it's the right thing to do, right? The, the church is being restricted in the things God has called us to do. So just meet anyways, gather anyways, suffer the consequences. This is a peaceful um, peaceful protest every time we gather. And and I would, I would fully support it. But because I'm not convinced and rebelling against the government's like a really big deal. And my default position is to be obedience. Then I'm going to fall onto the, onto the path of obedience until the time comes that I am personally convinced that, yes, this is just government oppression of religious freedoms. It's not really about uh, protecting people and keeping people safe. But there are two things that keep me from doing that so far. One is I'm not convinced that, that, uh, that things are as safe as guys like even John MacArthur says. Like I'm, I'm, just, I'm being honest with you guys. This is what I do Fridays. It's more off the cuff, but it's also less filtered. Um, I'm not convinced that his recounting of COVID-19 and all that is accurate, that the statistics that he's using them properly, I'm not convinced that he is. And people's lives are at stake here. So I'm going to fall on the side of, of the default position of submission and obedience, which is why I'm meeting outdoors in 105 degree weather this Sunday night. And, and, and I know everyone's polarized and some have their opinions, but you know what? I'm accountable to God and I'm going to, I'm going to do what I think is best. And I'm going to stand before God for that. And so are you. <laughs> so uh, that being said, um, I, I'm i not favorable toward the church doing that. But yet, because it's such a con con confusing issue to me, I would just say they're doing that. Lord, you're their judge, not me. I'm going to leave them to you. And I'm not going to create division on this topic, which is, I think, also really important that we don't create a bunch of division on this topic of meeting indoors and outdoors and all that. The church should be a model of of uh, graciousness in disagreement on secondary issues. And this is a secondary issue. All right, uh, Susan Morales has a question. Hi, Susan. Uh, shouldn't Christians practicing polygamy have the same moral obligation to obey God's commands on marriage as divorced Christians who should pursue restoration? Isn't polygamy a sin no matter what? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to read that one again, but let me just catch you guys up. I did a teaching on the topic of polygamy on if a polygamist gets saved, should they get a divorce? Should they divorce their wives, one of their wives? Like, how do we handle that? And I spent a lot of time on it. I, I like a lot of time on it, recorded it, waited two months, spent more time on it, recorded another, a new ending. <laughs> and then I put the video up and that was just a couple days ago. So this question kind of follows on the heels of that video. You're welcome to check it out. Um, it's on my channel there. Just type Mike Winger polygamy because I know you're all searching that term. <laughs> um, okay, so shouldn't Christians practicing polygamy? So let's say that you, let's say you did it before you got saved and then you, you got saved and you have multiple wives. Um, should they have the same moral obligation to obey God's commands on marriage as divorced Christians who should pursue restoration? Um, that I'm not sure if I understand your question, Susan. It sounds like you're saying, you're implying that um, that if a polygamist has, is separated, they should pursue restoration. But then your next statement is, isn't polygamy a sin no matter what? And I think that in that case, I would say polygamy is like the a scrambled egg of a marriage. I, I, in my opinion, it's a real marriage. It's just a marriage that is mixed in with sin because there's more than one marriage going on in this man's life and in these women's lives. And then that is marriage is still a thing. Marriage is still real to become one. But you know what? There's a constant compromise of sin going on inside that relationship. And so you have a mixed bag. You have a truly complicated moral situation where there's a desire to keep a marriage together and to preserve it and to, and to continue that commitment in fidelity. And there's an impossibility to do that perfectly or rightly because there's multiple marriages going on. You're going you're gonna to be uh, compromising somebody in some major huge relationship. So there's no... There's no simple solution. So is polygamy a sin? I think it's a sin. Yeah, I do. But does that mean we should just 
like ditch them. And, and I answered that in, my, in that previous video. So I'm going to read your question one last time to make sure I didn't miss it. Shouldn't Christians practicing polygamy have the same moral obligation to obey God's commands on marriage as divorced Christians who should pursue restoration? Um, still not for sure if I understood your question there, Susan. But I hope that I hope it helped. Maybe someone could help, help us in the comments there. Um, Sarah Nordberg says, uh, Hey, Mike, can you explain to me what is meant with sin not leading to death and sin leading to death? 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Let's go look at that passage together. And here it says, <clears throat> If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So here's a question. What on earth is sin that leads to death? Um, and why is it we're not supposed to pray about that? Now, I, I think in Roman Catholicism, you're going to find many people who point to this passage to show you a difference between venial and mortal sins. Because in Roman Catholicism, you have uh, venial sins, which are sins that you... Um, you're in trouble. If you die, you're going to have to deal with this in purgatory. You're going to have to provide satisfaction through your suffering in purgatory. And Catholics listening, yes, that is your theology. Like, read your actual counsels. Don't just go off of what some Catholic apologists told you. Like, you're going to have to provide satisfaction through your suffering for the sin that you committed because Jesus isn't isn't enough, apparently. Um, I think purgatory is one of is, is an atrocious teaching when you understand it actually the, what it really means. Uh, side note, Catholicism often nowadays, currently, will repackage purgatory as if it's something much more stripped down than what it really is in the Catholic theology. And they'll try to sell that to people. We, we've seen that recently on YouTube, by the way. Uh, but that's not even really the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. This is just, a, I think, a, a bridge-building technique that compromises their actual theology. Anyhow, um, but is it that? Or, you know, versus, versus a mortal sin on Catholicism, which leads to death, which means that you commit this sin and now you've lost your salvation and you're, you're toast, you're gone. Well, I, obviously you, you could interpret it that way, but here's the problem. Um, this, there's very little to go on. In fact, you've got, what, two verses in 1 John that talk about this and there's almost nothing else in Scripture that really highlights this issue. So why are we bringing in all of this baggage of purgatory and mortal and venial sin and we're reading it into the text but we're not just reading the text like if you didn't know about those things you probably wouldn't come up with them by reading the text itself here's another option is that a person who sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death that this might actually be talking about death that it's, that it might actually be talking about physical death so then it has a different connotation altogether there's sin that leads to death. There's some sins people commit where they actually are, they actually die as a result of these sins. They they're um, they're they're fornicating and they and they they get they get uh, disease. They they're they're committing adultery with somebody and the husband comes and kills the guy for for it. Like these are sins that led to death. They're rebelling against the government in ungodly ways and it results in their own them being shot or or killed or something like that. And in, in that sense, it may be that it's simply saying like, look, there, there's no, no longer an opportunity for them to repent, so don't be praying about that. I'm not trying to get you, in which case it would backfire against Catholicism, because it's actually praying, it's actually saying stop praying at the point at which people die in their sin. It's too late. There's nothing you can do for them anymore, right? But if they're still alive, we're going to be praying for them. We're going to be seeking their restoration for as long as we can. Uh, as long as they still live, we're praying for their restoration. That's another perspective that you have on that verse. Um, so yeah, I, I, anyway, there's a couple thoughts for you. I, I actually would like to do a more thorough, thoughtful study of first John five sixteen. There's some other things that a couple years ago when I studied it, that I had in my mind that I can't remember right now. There's some things for you to think about. Jeff Shoemaker says, can you elaborate on Hebrews six, four? Is it referring to backsliding or salvation? And I'm going to do a study on Hebrews six, four sometime, um, uh, I'm, so I, I'll announce this. I'm considering after I finish the Gospel of Mark to doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through the Gospel of Hebrew. The Gospel of Hebrew. Not the Gospel of Hebrews, which is actually an apocryphal or heretical or let's, let's just say not a uh, biblical book from, uh, you know, I don't know, second, third century, something like that. Anyway, um, no, I'm thinking about going through the book of Hebrews verse-by-verse -verse after I do the Gospel of Mark. And if I do that, I will do a real study 
a little study project on the topic of losing salvation, and I'll bring a, a, a careful teaching on that because everyone keeps asking me about it every day. <laughs> and, which, which I don't. It's not that I find it annoying. It's rather that I find it bothersome that I don't have better answers for those questions. And it would be nice if I could bring them. Uh, Naomi Yurkov says, "Hi again. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what righteous anger is biblically. If it if." It is biblical regarding humans' use of it and when it could be applicable for us. Thank you. Righteous anger. Um, I mean, righteous anger, the very concept itself, is pretty simple, right? It's right in the words. Righteous or good and, and anger. So it's when I'm anger, angry and I ought to be. And I think that we might want to expand that definition a bit to apply it into our lives. I would say righteous anger is, is you know, in a good way for Christians is seen, you see it in the life, when it's properly caused and it's properly applied. And that's where we get in trouble. So righteous anger could be, I'm angry over the evils of abortion. I'm angry over the evils of racism. I'm angry over the evils of, and you pick a topic. But then do I apply it righteously? Or do I express that anger at the wrong people or in the wrong ways? Do I overreact instead of underreact? I think anger causes us to overreact. You know, like I don't close the door, I slam it. I don't say it, I yell it. I, I, I don't just say, um, I have a problem here, I, I exaggerate the problem. So is it rightly caused and is it rightly applied? That's righteous anger in a nutshell. There you go. And how do you, how do, you do it? Well, um, let's say that you are uh, angry at the political spectrum and the things that are going on. And so you go on social media and all you do is rant and complain and further isolate yourself from all those people whom instead you should be trying to reach if, if you're one who has wisdom and understands these issues well. So instead of writing things that would help build bridges and help people understand them, your anger causes you to lash out at everybody who doesn't see it the way you do, which a lot of people don't because it's a confusing issue. And so that was anger wrongly applied, maybe rightly caused and wrongly applied. So those are our, those are our things. Uh, if Ephesians says it this way, it says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And that's the key. Your anger might even be rightly caused, but don't fall into sin as a result. And I have to it, it apologize to you guys. There's no cat cam today. Well, I mean, I have the cat. I don't have the cat. She hasn't been sitting in the chair recently. And part of the reason is because we got her, her hair cut dramatically. She basically looks like a little lion now. Moxie, she's covered in absolute fur. And I know you guys like to see her when I have a chance to put her on. I'll bring her back on once I can. But I... Moxie, come here, Katie. I just, she's not, so far she hasn't been coming. And um, she's part of it's because her hair was so poofy when we cut it back. She feels weird and doesn't want to lay in certain places. And we'll get there. Maybe I'll bribe her with catnip next week. <laughs> um, Chris Middleton has a question. He says, what are your views on communion and Eucharist? How much should the early church writings affect our view on communion? And this is kind of like a hot issue right now, I think, in the evangelical um, I, I want to say the evangelical world, but it's not just that. It's There's a certain cluster of people that spend a lot of time watching a variety of teachers on YouTube and online. And I think in that world, it's more of an issue at the moment. And um, uh, I think that I have one simple principle that affects my view on these things pretty dramatically. And I think it would affect yours too. And it's the idea that the Bible is our authority and that everything else secondary to that is secondary. And so it's not going to, it shouldn't jar me that much if I read in some early church writings something about the Eucharist or something about communion. It shouldn't jar me that much because I just see these people as not the apostles. They're not the apostles. And what I do see happening in church history is, is fast, well, relatively fast. I mean, it may have taken a hundred years, but from 2,000 years later, that looks fast, okay? But a hundred years, I mean, look at, okay, I'm part of Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel started in the 1970s under Pastor Chuck Smith, and it has changed radically over the last 50 years. It's changed a ton. And if somebody wanted to look at, um, at let's say, let's wait another 50 years, 100 years after it starts, and look at the way Calvary looks in a, you know, 100 years later compared to the way it looked when it first started, I guarantee you there's going to be massive differences and changes. That doesn't mean they're bad changes, doesn't mean they're good changes. It just means there's changes. Now, if you have the word of God being delivered by the apostles, then you're going to need to say, we want the original. And the original is in the scripture. And the scripture teaches, yes, regular communion, regular 
you know, partaking of communion meals together. It also doesn't teach the idea of the physical body of Jesus, the bread and wine turning into his physical body and blood. John 6 isn't about that at all. That verse is taken radically out of context. I think the biggest issue I see in in the the exegesis of those who try to use John 6 is is basically they take an idea of communion and teaching on communion that has certain terms and words, and then they read John 6 with all that in their mind. And they don't realize John 6 didn't have any of that in 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 the context of Jesus and in the context of his teaching to the Jews. None of that was there. There isn't even a, a Last Supper communion. There isn't even a communion meal in the Gospel of John. So how is John trying to make this giant teaching about communion? It's just not about that. Jesus himself says that his the flesh profits nothing in John 6, in the very passage. And um, so at any rate, the, the, the thing that Jesus is saying you have to do is you have to believe in him and that's how you partake of him. That's by faith. That's how you eat his flesh and blood. You trust in Christ. So yeah, because I don't, because I, I realize soberly how quickly things change, how they change over time, and how we tend to formalize things that weren't previously formalized. This is what happens. And we then take, to, we tend to take those things that have been formalized and we tend to elevate their importance. That's just a natural human tendency. So at first, you know, like Calvary Chapel, here we are. We're, we're worshiping with guitars because we're just using the people that are getting saved. You know, it was before I was born, but a bunch of hippies get saved and, they're, and, they're, and they play acoustic guitar and they, they use their music to, to worship Jesus. And they're worried about coming against, being, being uh, come against, being challenged by those who say hymns, not choruses, hymns, not choruses. And so they're like, come on, guys, we can worship God with all of these things. And so Calvary Costa Mesa actually did hymns and choruses. Fast forward 30 years, the year is 2000, and now we're getting some new worship bands that are coming out with new stuff. It's not that old, like, 70s, you know, Calvary music style stuff. Now it's like, you know, a little bit more harder rock sounding worship, and they're different bands, and they're these young people, and we don't really know if we trust them. And so now it's no longer hymns versus choruses. It's classic Calvary music versus this new stuff man, I just want the classic stuff. Like, these were so much better before. And it's the same thing that plays out again. What we did was we just happened to have guitar music and these people play this kinds of music because that's just what they were making. We then turned it into an icon that was not to be challenged. And then this just happens over and over again in the church. I think what happened with communion historically is it went from happening every time people would meet, then historically they moved it over to a different day and a different event. And you had to have special access permission by the leadership to have communion and then it turned into questions about um you know the the process like who 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 gives it to who who hands it to who and eventually you have in the in the during the reformation time the catholic church they actually only give the bread and they don't even give the wine because they think that if you drip one drop of this wine you have profaned the name of christ you've dripped the blood of jesus on the ground so for fear that the, the laity the normal people would drip or spill the blood of christ will only give them the bread so then they have a, a theological answer. Well, then that means that Jesus' body and blood are both in the bread. And they're both in the wine. You get body and blood just by the bread. But yet, in the John 6 passage, Jesus said you had to do both. Eat and drink both. So if you're going to misinterpret it to mean that literal physical body and blood of Christ, then you also have to have both. But this is the doctrinal development within the Catholic Church. So then they, you know, Council of Trent says, hey, just so you know, like... It's okay. It's okay to deny the, the bread. Now, now they don't do that as much, but uh, you just see it developing over time. So my, my answer is this. <laughs> I kind of went on for a while on that, but my answer is this. Um, you said, what are my views on the communion and Eucharist? I, I believe that <clears throat> it is not just an empty symbol. I do believe that it is a powerful, important, and very real thing that we do. That, that God desires us to do that has incredible value having communion on a regular basis. I do not think the early church writings should radically affect our view on communion, just like I don't think that um, what someone says in 50 years in the name of Calvary Chapel reflects Chuck Smith. Okay, I have what Chuck Smith wrote. Like I can, and I'm, by the way, I'm not, like, I'm not like a follower of Chuck Smith. I'm just trying to use this as an illustration. I think we have the apostles and when we see development of doctrine over time, and we see stuff 100, 300, 500, 1,000, 1,500 years later, we don't have the teaching of the apostles. We have the teaching of others who are sometimes doing it in the name of the apostles and sometimes erroneously. Um, 
Andrej Polak says, is there any good reason to think that the rapture of the church will most probably happen during the Feast of Trumpets? Um, I think that there's a subtle reason to think that that, that could be the timing. You know, just because we, we see with the life of Jesus that that certain feasts were like really fulfilled. Like he actually seems to have fulfilled these feasts during his time on the earth, but other feasts are not fulfilled. And so we look at those and we say, boy, those unfulfilled feasts do seem to connect to the future prophecies about events that are going to happen, you know, at one time. So that would be like, oh, well, the Feast of Trumpets, that sounds... But Jesus also says, he also says that no one knows the day or the hour. And so that makes me question whether or not we should attach that event to that time because no one knows. Yet, if we're meant to think that it's at the Feast of Trumpets, well, we at least know something, don't we? Um, so I guess there's my thoughts. Uh, Faith Brooks says, what's the difference between a feeling and a conviction? Oh, hmm. I guess sometimes we use the term synonymously. Um, I just feel that, 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 that. But we also use the term, so, so here's words where we use them in different ways. Right. Feeling I use to refer to my emotions. Um, conviction, I usually refer to you, to I use to refer to like a firm uh, belief uh, and a stance on some issue. Okay, but here's where they merge a bit, right? When I say conviction and I'm talking about how I emotionally feel about the issue, well, now I'm use, I can use either word because that's a conviction and it's a feeling at the same time. But, but yeah, to separate them, I would say conviction is a firm a firm stance on an issue, an opinion that you have about this topic. That's my conviction. And it might just be applying it to me. It might be applying it to others. And then a feeling is ultimately emotional, but it does because these convictions arouse feelings. So I may well have strong feelings that go with all my convictions. Um, let's see here. Joe, Joel Larson says, how much authority does a father have over his adult children? Does it differ between sons and daughters? And the answer is, um, even in the Old Testament, there's a limit. So um, a, a young woman, young woman, uh, the father could overrule if she made a bad vow. And I think this is a healthy protection for, 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 the, for the girls. I've seen, I could give a dramatic example. Um, I'll, well, I'll pass on that. <laughs> Don't always share everything you know. But um, but, uh, but basically, a, a, a young girl, let's say that a girl agrees, she's 14 and she agrees to do a job, a modeling job for somebody. And then the, the father's like, hey, this is not the kind of thing you should be involved in. This is sketchy and this is like inappropriate. And I think that they're trying to get you, you know, to do inappropriate things. And so he can overrule that. That would be like the Old Testament principle where he could overrule it. But my reason why I bring this up is because it applied to young women, if I remember correctly, which would imply that at, at an older age, that that isn't there. Um, so how much do, you know, adult children, I, I think adult parents naturally move from total authoritarian to counselors and examples over time. And it happens gradually. So teen years is where this transition is taking place big time. And that's a hard time, right? Because they've been totally authoritarian to slowly moving into the position of being a counselor. And I think that we naturally see as a person gets older, they, they make more of their own decisions and they're responsible for them. And it's perfectly good to see a gradual thing. But an, an example, here's an example I will share. A man who is a grown man, well, he's, he's in his mid-20s, right? He's working a full-time job and his parents went to him and told him, we want you to co-sign this house for us. Now, his parents have terrible credit and they've had bad money management through their lives. And they say, we want you to co-sign. And he asked me, he's like, but you know, the Bible says I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. They're asking me to co-sign. And I said, well, you can honor them while saying no, because in all reality, this is your decision, not theirs. So when you're children, it's not your decision, it's your parents. When you're adults, it's your decision, not theirs. You honor them by giving them respect, by listening to them, by considering what they want, and considering it highly because they're your parents. But it's still your choice. And marriage gives an example of this because the, the, the father, the husband is said to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And so all, all the much more, you can't be under your parents' authority when you're married because it doesn't work anymore. So authority is beautiful as a child. It's authoritarian parents as an adult is actually ugly. And I think it, it hinders you unless you have some incapacity to make decisions. It's probably not a good idea. Um, all right. David Hinnebog says, 
can you comment on Michael Heiser and his divine counsel theory? So Michael Heiser, who I am somewhat familiar with, Michael Heiser, uh, let me first say this. You asked, you asked two things. Comment on Michael Heiser and his divine counsel theory. Let me start with Michael Heiser. I actually really, really appreciate Dr. Michael Heiser and his content. Um, he is so good at uh, breaking things down without dumbing them down. And that's a skill. That's a great skill to have. He breaks things down without dumbing them down. He gives people access to scholarship and really, really thoughtful content. He has a podcast, he's got a YouTube channel, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I, I, will, I will occasionally listen to his content and I'll just be like, wow, that was great, man. And, and someone who does a lot of research, just finding the right paper is like sometimes takes crazy numbers of hours just to find the right paper where somebody thoughtfully addressed the issue you're looking for and helped you get footnotes that get you to the content you need like just just that can take crazy amounts of time so having access to scholars who are familiar with the literature and who break it down in a simple way is absolutely fantastic he's also a believer he's a christian he loves the lord and all this stuff that's michael heiser divine counsel theory is a theory he has about um well, it's a worldview theory, and I don't agree with it personally. Um, I don't agree with it, and I, but I, I don't have like teaching on the topic because I haven't done my due diligence to get to that point. But he's he's basically saying that um, God, in his authority authority structure in the universe, he has these other beings, which I'll, I'll, here I'll, I'll I'll use the terms that'll freak you out a bit. And then I'll explain them because everybody misunderstands Michael Heiser and he gets a lot of bad attention because they don't understand what he's saying. Uh, but there's these other beings and these are Elohim, which are not, they're not, they're not God in the, in the way you're thinking, but they're Elohim, they're um, divine beings, and they are actually sort of sublet out to rule and, and control various nations and various things in the world. And there's only one God, there's only one God, he's eternal, Yahweh is eternal, he's unique. But the, but that the word Elohim can be used to refer to things other than God. And that's actually very true. The word Elohim can be used to refer to that. I mean, Samuel, when he's brought up, uh, when Saul wants to talk to Samuel, and he's brought up in that interesting passage, The Witch of Endor, which sounds like a Star Wars movie. Um, in that passage, he's called an Elohim, right? Because he's a disembodied spirit, so he just calls him an Elohim because the word has flexible meaning. So sometimes it refers to God. We use it in English. We think of it as a lowercase g. At any rate, I, um, there's a lot more that can be said about that. But the key passages, Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, I think it is, um, those passages I don't interpret the way Michael Heiser does, and I, I think that he's got it wrong, think he's got it wrong, and for that reason I don't go down that road. And I think that the, um, the whole idea of this divine counsel theory just... It's, it's weird theology, to be honest. I mean, I think that he would acknowledge that too, at least weird to most people. So yeah, the divine counsel theory, I'm not inclined to think so. I think I prefer other interpretations of those key passages. And one day, maybe, I'll do a thoughtful response. But Michael Heiser's work is so thorough on these topics that you really need to engage him in detail if you want to talk about these issues and not, not do a um, casual off-the-cuff response. So yeah. Yeah, now I have the ability, and maybe, maybe you don't, but maybe you should develop it. The ability to listen to people I don't agree with on everything and to still learn from them. And this did take time to develop. But if you have that ability um, and you know where your grounding is in theology and you know your trust and faith in Christ and your beliefs about scripture, then you can really learn a lot more because you're able to listen to different people. And it's good for us to have multiple teachers. Folky has a question, says, um, what to say to people who claim that the Old Testament's not true because apparently, in quotes, there was never a biblical flood or exodus and the Hebrews copied all cultures around them, etc." My teacher says this. Um, your teacher is, uh, I'm being honest here, sounds very misinformed. And part of it is because of what became labeled in scholarship, it became labeled as um, parallelomania. <laughs> Let me tell you what parallelomania is. So in Old Testament scholarship, in like, I don't know, the 1800s, I think, they were digging up these old, like Babylonian flood accounts or th th these various like Egyptian records and stuff. And some of these have overlap with some of the things we read about in the Bible. And so parallelomania came up when they started trying to parallel everything. And they started to try to explain the Bible as though the Bible borrowed from all of these other accounts. And this is simply not true. 
um, when you go into it in detail, it, it, it plays really well. It's very easy to make a short little video where you're like, oh, the Babylonian account, blah, 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 epic of Gilgamesh, blah, 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 um, you know, Homer's Iliad. Then you could, you could say those things, but when you look at them in, in great detail, so if you pick one of these stories, like say the Enuma Elish, and you read it in great, like actually read it, I've done this, and you go, oh my goodness, this is not a copy of the biblical account at all, nor is the biblical account a copy of this. This is a conflicting account because they're trying to explain creation. So, of course, they have creation stories and there are similarities because they're using, talking about similar things. But the Bible is massively different than all those other accounts in some very important ways. For one, there's only one God. For another, he's, he's a God from all eternity who creates all things. He's not a part of the creation. Um, for another, the things that are created are not beings. The sun is not a god and is not the result of gutting, you know, some giant dragon and then the blood spills out and then that creates the ocean or something. Like, none of that. No, no, God just speaks through his word and creates. He creates an orderly universe. Chaos is not a theme in, in Genesis. These are just, I'm just throwing bullet points out for you. So these, you shouldn't act like these are paralleled like that. Uh, they're really not. They they do have some similarities, but they're explainable through um, uh, common common themes. They're creation accounts. They're accounts of creation. Okay, so it's not like no one's ever thought to say, how did it all get here? The flood, the flood issue, and I'll talk about the flood in Exodus now, but the flood issue is different. The flood issue, if there was a worldwide flood, I wouldn't be surprised, or, or even a human worldwide flood, like it, 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 it uh, in other words, so worldwide could be planet-wide, but it could also refer to simply uh, wherever humans were. Okay, so if, if, if either of those events happened, there's this massive flood on humanity then you would not be surprised to find that different cultures preserve various accounts of that flood. And that's what we see. We see various accounts in cultures that seem disconnected from scripture, that seem disconnected, from, you know, they're not being influenced by the Babylonians or anybody else. They just have their own flood account. Why? Because there's some sort of human memory of an event like a flood. And the, the biblical event, I would say, would be, biblical account, I'd say, is the accurate and true one. Okay, but... But just to say there's similarities, if anything, it just speaks of a human memory of a flood. I think that's pretty significant. Now, Exodus. Exodus for a long time has been like a weak spot in the armor of, of defending scripture. Um, not the book of Exodus, but the, the Exodus, the leaving of Israel, the fact that they were in bondage and then they left. And for a long time, there's been a, a general assumption by people that this, this, there's no evidence for it. There's no evidence the Israelites were ever in Egypt. There's no evidence that there was a great Exodus type event. There's no evidence for those things. And that's actually not true. And so um, some of you guys know Inspiring Philosophy. I know um, firsthand that he is working on a really good video, like an hour-long video on evidence that the Exodus really happened. And so that's something you can, you can look for on his channel, Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube. And I, I'm looking forward to that video. I think you guys should check it out. But also you can look up, there's tons of content online um, talking about whether it's the cities that are mentioned, the, the dating of the Exodus, the, the wilderness travels of the Israelites. There's, there's a lot more evidence that's there. And I, I, I've probably talked too long. We're out of time. But check those out. And maybe I'll do a, an interview with somebody on this topic um, in the future. I think that it's worthwhile. Absolutely. So, uh, I am out of time, but I'm gonna take one more question cause I can't help myself. Okay. So let's see. Um, floaty. Oh, by the way, last thing I'll mention to you, Fulke, um, in my experience, college professors who are not professors in the area they're speaking on, they're often just repeating fairly thin things they've heard. And if you can do some thoughtful research, pick one issue and you can maybe talk to the professor about it, you will often find that their knowledge is this deep. Um, I remember professors saying stuff about the Bible and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, I, I had a music teacher who ripped on the Reformation because he's like, Martin Luther actually nailed his thesis to the door of a church. Like how messed up is that? And then I was like, well, yeah, yeah. That was like the normal way of doing public notices back then. Everybody nailed stuff to the church door. It was totally accepted. And he was just like, oh, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes if you get a little bit more info, you can, uh, you can get through there. Uh, all right. Floaty Doc says, your teaching is a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in Genesis 6 and 1 Samuel 15, God regretted his decisions. How can God, who knows all things, make a decision that he later decides was wrong? I actually have a whole video on this and you do need a whole video on it. And it's called like, um, 
why God repents and changes his mind. I think that's the name of the video. And maybe one of my mods can find it and stick it in the live chat. Why God repents and changes his mind. And I go through those passages and I go through a lot more information there. This is one of those passages that open theists will use to suggest that God actually doesn't know what will happen in the future. He only knows what could happen, but he doesn't know what will happen. And that is a, a, a big problematic theology in my opinion. I think people don't realize how problematic it is, but but they use these verses of God repenting. And so I'm going to reference, here's my video handoff here at the end of the live stream. Please just go watch that video. Go check out the video about, I think the title says, wait, God repents. And, and then, or the thumbnail says that. And the title is something like um, the, um, uh, whatever I said it was a minute ago. <laughs> All right. So you, thank you guys. Um, I will try and get my cat here on the next live stream. And in the meantime, I have a, an announcement to make, a video coming out next well monday is going to be in you know teaching through the mark series um the next series in mark uh, then wednesday i have a video coming out that was my interview with sean mcdowell on the topic of how to do you know be successful on youtube doing christian ministry stuff and so i'm going to put that video out um it's a it's an interview going into some detail there uh, the week after that i got a video coming out i did with apologia um, on the mother god cult that has been up on their channel and it's on there right now i'll put it on mine as well and then we got more stuff coming after that. So lots of content. I'll be doing three videos the next few weeks, three videos a week. And I hope that it's a blessing to you in the meantime. I hope that today has blessed you. And not only given you maybe answers, but I hope somehow in, in trying to give you these answers, I'm hoping to communicate godly attitudes about questions. And I hope some of the hope that we have in Christ, that you can rest in him, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because it is by grace, it is by grace that we access this, this incredible peace that we stand in, that we rest in, that we, in fact, let me share with you, I don't want to leave you without this verse, okay, Romans 5, this is the verse that's in my head as I'm rambling here, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that is not works, by faith, you're justified by just trusting in him, you're made just, righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace because you didn't do anything to earn it because it's all by grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into what? Into this grace in which we stand. So I am just standing in grace. I am daily, moment by moment, living in the grace of God because of faith in Christ and not because of any works I've done. And that's why I can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because I'm a partaker through his incredible grace. So I hope that encourages you. Rest in Christ today.